Okay, so we're in the, the last couple of verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Really, uh, not these aren't red letters, these last two verses, but uh, that's kind of a funny thing. Did you, did you ever have a red letter Bible when you were growing up? Anybody have one of those? I think I got one when I was 10, maybe. I still got it. It's a King James Version and had a little zipper on it, you know, and open it up, and there's the words of Jesus in red, and uh, kind of gives you that idea that what Jesus said was more important than what the rest of the Bible says, doesn't it? But that's not true, but we kind of get that idea by looking at the red letters. Anyway, then you ever have one of those theme Bibles that's got all these different themes and different colors already highlighted for your convenience? You ever seen one of those? I can't remember what they're called, but they've got like eight or ten colors. You know, one on grace, one on judgment, one on whatever. You know, that's kind of interesting. You don't even have to use a highlighter. It's already done for you. Anyway, I want to read this to you out of Hebrews chapter 1. Then we're going to look at this last couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? God has a high opinion of his son, doesn't he? And the feeling is equal, the estimation is equal, and uh, reciprocal. So Jesus has finished this Sermon on the Mount, and... uh, it's really a declaration of the nature of the kingdom of God, what the subjects are like in that kingdom with those that are defined by the Beatitudes. Uh, there's a metaphor Jesus uses about what these disciples, what these members of the kingdom will be like in the world. They're going to be salt, they're going to be light. And then he gives us a long treatise on uh, how they will conduct their affairs among themselves especially, that is, within the kingdom, but also how they'll present themselves to the people outside the kingdom in the world and how they are to guard themselves against uh, certain temptations and pitfalls that Jesus warns them about because everything that they're doing and all their lives lived in this kingdom, in this age, are under the watchful eye of God. It's like on the dollar bill, you got that eyeball up there on the back. And God sees all things, knows all things, and He sees what His people are doing. And all of our lives are under the eye of God. And in the end, when we stand before Jesus, we'll give an account. And so Jesus warns at the end of this sermon to be careful. You know, be careful little eyes what you see. 
Be careful, little ears, what you hear. You know all those things? Remember seeing that in Vacation Bible School? And so we're to be careful, we're to be watchful, be circumspect, that we stay to the narrow way, that we don't uh, fall prey to those things that are false, that would lead us and distract us from falling after Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so now this, this sermon is finished. Jesus said, be careful what you build on, how you build, because it's going to be tested through this life and in the age to come, all those things will be judged. And so now we come to this last two verses, which is not a statement of Jesus, but a statement about how this sermon has impacted those hearers. And this is what it says, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So they were used to teaching. Jews were used to a lot of teaching. They were uh, used to the rabbis, to the scribes, the Pharisees, maybe the Sadducees, teaching some. But they'd never heard anybody like this. And there's something about integrity that makes a person's words carry authority in there. And no one has ever been as integrated as Jesus. No one has ever loved the Lord, his God, with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, all of his thoughts, all of his ambitions, all of his desires. Nobody was ever integrated like Jesus. And so it's natural that his words are going to carry an authority like nobody else's, more than Gamaliel's, more than Paul's even. But yet when Paul speaks, in a sense, ex cathedra, when he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, his words have similar force, don't they? In fact, the same force as the words of Jesus. So... Here's, here's a catechism I've got for you. How does God exercise his authority, display his power, and reveal himself? How does he do that? He speaks, doesn't he? So I, I made a list up here. I went through this last night, and I was looking at this on these related scriptures. And so in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, And God said... And God said, and Jesus spoke, and the people were going, wow. We've never heard anything like this. And they are panic-stricken. They are astonished. They are amazed when Jesus has spoken this sermon. They are dumbstruck. They are trembling at the word of God, which is something that happens sometimes, doesn't it? Happens uh, Happens all, happens all the time in the Bible. Even on the Isle of Patmos where John meets the resurrected, glorified Jesus, the one who is the closest of the disciples of Jesus, when he sees and hears the voice of Jesus, he falls down as a dead man. This is a man that's followed Jesus for decades, sold himself out to Jesus, been boiled in oil and left to die on an isolated island off the Greek mainland. And when he is presented with the voice of Jesus like a trumpet that sounds mighty. He falls like a dead man. And this is not an isolated case. When Jesus climbs onto the boat with Peter, and Peter gets this huge catch, Peter's response is, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When Isaiah sees the glory of God, it says he disintegrates. His, his integrated life begins to come apart from the center because of the view of God and the voice of the angels saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, and the glory of God fills the temple. And it's like when uh, Gideon offers his sacrifice 
to the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, when he offers that sacrifice, and he understands when that sacrifice goes up and smoke off of the rock, and he says, I've seen God face to face, I cannot live. It's like when Israel is standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they see the lightning, and they see, hear the, the thunder, the smoke is going up, and they hear the voice of God, and they said, don't let us hear that again, Moses. We don't want to hear that. You tell us what he says. And so this is the same kind of impact that this sermon has had. These people are astonished. It blows them away. They are quaking. They are trembling at the authority, at the power, and the truth of this sermon. And depending on how they respond to that sermon, they'll either be free to walk with God or it'll bring condemnation because this is what God's voice is. It's truth. And it either brings freedom or it brings condemnation. There's not a, there's not a middle ground. And so these people are having to make choices uh, and a lot of them are going to follow Jesus and a lot of them won't follow Jesus. So I wanted to just share four points that I see about this. The aim of this sermon, which is the aim of all good sermons, is to bring us in contact with God, to bring us in contact with Christ Jesus. That's the aim of every sermon. You know, it's not, it's not simply how to be a better father, how to be a good husband, how to be a good witness, but really to bring us in contact with the person of Christ Jesus. To see Him, to know Him, to look upon Him, and to really to have ISAV applied to us so we can see more clearly and keep going on with Him and know Him better. But the aim of every sermon is to see Jesus more clearly. And so Jesus had said previously in this, in this sermon as He began, one of the things He said was, Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. And those who are having a heart to see God at the end of this sermon are aghast, their jaws are slack, and they're astonished, and they say, this is, this is God, this is, this is truth incarnate speaking in the sermon. This is not just another, you know, well-trained scribe or a rabbi. This is the rabbi, the teacher. This is the, the great one, you know. This is God himself. And so this is the aim of this, this sermon is to see that. And really that's the, what theologians have called the beatific vision because that's really the great desire of the human heart and to see perfection and for the christian it's to see god face to face you know it does not yet appear john says what we'll be like you know but when we see him we become like him because we'll see him as he is so now we're looking through the mirror dimly you know into the glass darkly but then face to face and i'm thinking what's that song the movie just came out i can only imagine you know i can only imagine when we see god face to face wow we're going to be astonished. I don't care how long we've walked with him. When Billy Graham got there, he wasn't nonchalant. Said, well, God, it's about time. I was glad to see you. No, it's... You know? When John the Revelator saw Jesus, when he heard his voice, he fell as a dead man. When Daniel was approached by the angel of the Lord, even not even the angel of the Lord, but just a messenger, he fell before him and he had to be lifted off of the ground. He was astonished at the magnitude of the authority and the truth that was being conveyed to him and that's the same with this crowd and we've all had these kind of experiences you know where where god is so close we're we're afraid to look behind us you know we sense the presence of god i I don't know if i look i really want to look but dare i look you know and so this is this is what's going on at the end of this sermon as these people are astonished because this sermon as no sermon ever really brought people in contact with god so that's the aim of, of the, the sermon. 
In the astonishment of the hearers, I just, you know, they were conscious stricken. Truth convicts and transforms or it will condemn. So if we don't let the truth work in us, it will be our judge at the end. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world, but he said, there is a judge, the words I speak. And so these words that he spoke, they, they, you know, you ever been in a sermon where you just kind of wanted to hide, you know, almost? It's like God's just, he's really inserting the knife and beginning to twist between the joints and the marrow, the thoughts of the the intents of the heart are being exposed to the truth and he's calling us because in his kindness he leads us to repentance and he wants us to and being confronted with the truth he wants us to turn to embrace that truth so that we're transformed and that can be rejected and if it is rejected then it only leaves judgment behind but if it's received then there's healing and there's truth that sets free that goes on and continues to work in our lives so the authority of Christ uh, and the reason that he had carried such authority is obvious. First of all, he's God. But I mean, he was God who didn't think equality with God a thing to be grasped, it says in Philippians. So he abandoned all that and took on human form. And humility is a, is a tremendous conduit for authority. That's why Billy Graham had authority. Because he was humble. You know, you read this guy's life, and there'll be more and more that comes out about him. But just the things that have been written since he died... And the, the biographies are written prior to his death. This was a very humble man. A man that was just given to God as, as fully as man can give himself to God. But Jesus was God and he gave it up. And so his humility was absolutely perfect. And humility is a conduit of authority. That's good, that's good news for us. That's, a, that's an invitation to discipleship to us that our lives can carry this authority. We're going to look at that a little bit more, but, but God gives to His children authority to bear witness for Him. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses. And so those that humble themselves to become disciples of Jesus put themselves in a long line of humble servants. And they begin to grow in that humility. And the, the better we see Jesus, the more humble we'll become. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. And God's kindness leads us to repentance, but His kindness is, comes through His truth. comes through His truth. And so Jesus is doing this, this uh, authoritarian preaching. So the authority that Jesus has as He speaks this sermon is the same, same authority that He had with the Father prior to creation, where together in council they said, Let there be, and there was let there be and so nothing resists the authority of God ultimately and uh, Jesus conveys that to us so you think about the I was thinking about the uh, confession that we make almost every Sunday with the Apostles Creed he descended into hell now that's humility isn't it God descending into hell in our place taking the punishment on the cross that's a mysterious thing we really can't peer into that right now very much but we understand that he took upon himself and became our sin and descended into hell but he didn't stay there, did he? The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. To be at the right hand of God is to have all authority. That's the position of authority. Jesus had all authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so the church, that's us, we've been given this authority, deputized, to be about the business of speaking truth. And truth is powerful. We don't have to speak the truth, the power. We just speak the truth. It's powerful. 
And so Jesus, the truth, the embodied truth, humbling himself before the Father, when he spoke, Lazarus came forth. When he spoke to the little girl who had died and said, Talitha Kumi, when he said, when he said, Lassie walking in the Scots edition, when he said that to her, she rose up. That's authority, isn't it? The gates of hell shall not prevail against the kingdom of God. And so that Jesus gave the keys to Peter. Peter gave them to whoever his next buddy was, you know, Mark. Mark gave them to the next person. They gave them to the next person. Somebody gave them to you at some point. Gave them to me. Because we received the Lord Jesus Christ. We submitted ourselves under his lordship. And so we received authority. Not an authority to do our own thing. Because Jesus' authority was gained. Wasn't gained, but the way that it operated in his life was because he only sought the glory of his father. He only sought the will of his father. And so as we do likewise, as we learn to do that, our lives are full of the authority of the Holy Spirit. And lots of time, and that doesn't mean that we, that doesn't mean we're always going to be appreciated. Sometimes we talk about Jesus being winsome, but he wasn't very winsome to the Pharisees and Sadducees, was he? He wasn't very winsome to Judas or to Pilate. He wasn't winsome to the majority of people. Crucify him! Truth is not winsome except to those that receive it in their neediness. Those who are poor in spirit, and they recognize it. And they mourn over their brokenness, you know, and then they're comforted. But, uh, I don't know, Jesus, winsome's not a very good word to me for Jesus, you know. But at any rate, so he's going to come to judge the quick and the dead, and the crowd sees this. They hear this. And they tremble. They are astonished that this is who they will stand before as well as who they're standing before now. So the application in ministry is, is that this power, this authority is entrusted to disciples. Jesus didn't come to be a, you know, to be a one-man band in a lot of ways. He, he's the only Savior. He's the only one that could die for the sins of man. But even when he was in his earthly ministry, he told his disciples on occasion, he said, listen, I'm going to have to deputize you guys. I can't get to all the villages. I'm restricted. I can't make it. And so he, in Luke chapter 9, he gives this authority to 12 others. He says, go and heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse the leper and cast out demons and preach good news to the poor and speak peace to the houses you come to. And if they receive that peace, peace will abide upon them if they don't turn away and keep going. And then the next chapter, he, he uh, deputizes 72 people and sends them out with the same kind of instruction. says, do this. And so those are pictures for us that, that Jesus never quits doing that. He calls disciples that are to go out in his authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Here, take some of this and go and make disciples. And so we're assigned to go out into the world, wherever we are, whether we're you know, practicing law or, or making eyeglasses that, like Steve has that that make the other Steve not see this right on my shirt, you know? See, some of y'all, do you have a problem with your vision? Does my shirt look strange or something? Well, talk to Steve. He's, he'll fix you up. Yeah. But so, so whatever we're doing in life, whether we're a secretary, whether we're a, a doctor, a teacher, a housewife, whatever we are, we've been deputized with the authority to be disciple makers. That's the arena wherever God's planted us to be about his work of expanding his kingdom and he's given us the authority he hadn't told us just do the best you can he says here take my authority utilize my authority and so we're about the business of of doing that as we walk with jesus so i wanted to, i just wanted to take a little bit of time in the 
And we'll just go right to the bottom. I like this. This is in Matt, and uh, we could find the kind of parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, but Mark 4 is the, at the end, near the end of that chapter's one of the best ones. This is just like a day in the life of Jesus. And not every day in the life of Jesus was like this day, but this, is, this kind of fills the gamut of what his ministry accomplished. Because when he healed the sick and raised the dead and cleansed the leper and cast out demons, what he was doing is he was showing in the natural how the kingdom of God was going to set everything right in the end. Everything's going to be right in the end. There won't be any lepers. There won't be any demoniacs. There won't be any, anything out of order when Jesus comes in his fullness. And so he gave a taste of that. He showed a little bit of that when he went about his ministry. So this is Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. And it says, On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. Now that's authority, isn't it? That is authority. Jesus has all authority over his creation. It doesn't do anything that's not permitted for the purposes of the glory of God. Some of those purposes are hidden to us in the the interim, but one of these days it will be clear. But creation is absolutely subject to God the Father who said, let there be, and to God the Son who gets on the boat and in the middle of the storm and says, peace, be still. Well, that was simple, wasn't it? So the wind ceased and there was a great calm and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one, this, this is interesting, watch, watch this in, in these four episodes here, these four vignettes in the same day. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were like that crowd and they had already heard Jesus. They'd already seen Jesus working. The crowd was astonished. They were panic stricken. They were overcome. These disciples who had seen Jesus do a lot of things already. Wow. They were afraid. Who is this? Well, this is God in the flesh. This is who it is. This is who you and I have responded to in faith. This is the one who's come to dwell in us by the same spirit that hovered over the deeps and over the chaos when God said, let there be. This is an amazing thing to consider that we've become vessels of transcendent power as we've yielded to Christ Jesus. And the more that we see him, the more that we humble ourselves, the more thoroughly can his authority work through us. It's not always a welcome authority. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it's the authority of God that works through us as we bear witness to the truth. So you have this disaster. Now, you know, the devil's intent was to do what? Drown the Son of Man. But the Father's intent was to show the devil, hey, buddy, you know, you may be God of the world temporarily, but my Son is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has authority over creation. And when he says, peace be still, your storm's got to calm down. So Jesus had already told him, so we're going to go to the other side. So Jesus averts this disaster for the sake of the will of God, and he always has authority over disasters. But disasters still happen, don't they? Rains come down, the floods rise, and houses that aren't built on the solid rock, they're going to collapse. So they come to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. This is chapter 5. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. 
and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. He, didn't, he never did that to anybody else. You know, nobody else struck fear into the heart of this legion of demons. Not the rabbis, not the exorcists, you know. Nobody. But when Jesus shows up, this demon knows who God is, and he knows Christ Jesus. He says, what do you have to do with me? And so Jesus, finding out what his name is, you know, cast the demon out. And when the people of the town come back, the ones that had gotten together in huge crews and bound this guy with chains come back, and he's seated, clothed in his right mind. It says, they were afraid. They were astonished that there was a man among them that had authority to bind this guy. Wow. This is tremendous authority to bind the God of this world. So Jesus not only averts disaster, he conquers demons, he conquers the devil. You know? Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of God. Well, if we're in the church of God, that includes us. It's an interesting thing to think about how we're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, and beneath his feet are all spiritual authorities and powers, all dominions. They're beneath the feet of Jesus. So if we're seated in Christ Jesus, and we're, I don't make this too lighthearted, but if we're the big toe of the body of Christ, if we're the heel of the body of Christ, whatever member, whatever portion we pay in the body of Christ, our adversaries are beneath our authority. Isn't that an amazing thing? And if we die in battle against them, we still conquer, don't we? Because we're more than conquerors. Because Jesus has overcome death, hell, and the grave and has the keys to all of those things that are contrary to his will and purpose. And if we're walking with Christ Jesus, then we have authority over the devil and his demons. And so we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony and because we love not our lives even unto death. We have authority. Nothing can separate us from the love of God because Jesus has been promoted to the right hand of the Father and he rules and reigns. And so... When we meet with that kind of power, even though we may be family of God, even though we may be sons and daughters of God, it is astonishing. It is fearsome. It causes us to tremble. John falls down on his face before Jesus, to whom he was closely and intimately related. And so this guy's delivered. Then it goes on from there in verse 21. And it says, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, which is always kind of an interesting thing to me, he took a detour just to go over there and free this guy. Let's go across the other side. Freeze the demoniac. Say, okay, let's go back. We finished that. Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that a neat picture of Jesus, of the Father's heart, that there's a demoniac that's really out of the way? I mean, this is out of the way. Let's go over here. What are we going over there for? Well, first we're going to go through the storm so you can see some power, some authority, so you can grow confident in me. But then I really want to free this guy. I want to get him loose from those things that are oppressing him. I don't want him to be under the heel of the adversary any longer. And so Jesus takes his detour. As soon as he finishes, get back in the boat, go to the other side. So they come to the other side. They came, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, in verse 22, Jairus by name. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. 
And so he went with him. And so you know the story, this crowd is just thronging around him. They're just pushing in. Uh, a lot of different motivations going on there. But they're pushing in around him and, you know, just pressing upon him. We, we've all seen this, you know, where, where people that are celebrities or, or politicians and they have to have people kind of pushing people out of the way and, and uh, they can't stop. They've got to keep going. And, and so this woman that's got this issue of blood and has had it for years and has spent all of her money and she's grown worse, she, she just thinks, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, man, I've heard about this guy. If I can just touch that. So she finally just, with all the force within her, gets in there, grabs the hem of Jesus' garment, and she's well, and she knows it. And Jesus discerns that power has exited his being. He says, who touched me? And they say, are you crazy? Everybody's touching you. What do you mean? But he knows somebody touched him in desperation of faith. And this woman comes, and it says right down here, see if I can find the verse. And the woman, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling. She was astonished. She was coming apart inwardly. Oh, I've been discovered. And so he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Jesus has overcome disaster. He's overcome demons. Now he's overcome disease. He has all authority over disease. That's why we can pray for the sick with expectancy, because Jesus is the healer. You know, He's the healer. And it's kind of like this. Sometimes, have you ever witnessed to somebody that didn't believe? Have you ever had that experience? You give your testimony, you talk about how Jesus is the Savior, He is the sin bearer, and those who believe in Him will have their sins forgiven and be adopted in the family of God. You ever, and they didn't believe? you ever had that experience? So did you quit witnessing because that person didn't believe? Now we wouldn't do that, would we? So have you ever prayed for somebody that wasn't healed? Has anybody ever done that? Did you quit praying for people that are sick? We shouldn't do that, should we? We don't quit evangelizing because not everybody believes. We shouldn't ever quit praying for the sick because somebody's not healed. Because Jesus heals disease. We should, we should pray for disasters to be averted. Why? Because they'll all be averted? No. Not because of that. Because we know that Jesus overcomes and averts disaster. We know that He overcomes demonic powers. And so we should speak freedom to people. We ever get, you know, there's a lot of demons in the world. A lot of demons in the world. Some of them, some of them are greed demons. Some of them are lust demons. Some of them are pride demons. There's all kinds of demons, you know. They specialize. But Jesus has authority over all, all the demons. He crushed the head of the adversary who's the captain of the demons. And so we go with the news of deliverance. So Jesus heals this person. Now, so now we get back into the, the parade towards Jairus' household where he's come and begged Jesus to come to his daughter. So in verse 35 it says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, but believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. They were astonished. It was overwhelming. The word of Jesus spoke life to this dead girl. Isn't this an amazing thing? He's overcome disaster. He's overcome demons. He's overcome disease. Now he overcomes death. I don't know if you... Y'all have, y'all have any problems in life? Yeah? Here, now death is a pretty big problem, isn't it? Death is the, death is the problem, isn't it? Death is the problem. But Jesus has overcome death. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Knowing all these things are more than conquerors to whom we love us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? You know, who? What will do that? Will things present or things to come or height or depth or powers or death? No. None of those things can separate us. Jesus has overcome all of those things. When he speaks the Sermon on the Mount, he said, this is the kingdom of God. These people and how they behave in life. This brings my kingdom. And when he finished that sermon, people were astonished. They were absolutely astonished because it had cut them to the quick. And those who had responded in humility found themselves adopted and healed and brought into the the family and the flow of God's purposes. And he's given us this authority to be about his business. And that doesn't mean we won't confront fear. We will confront fear in the worst sense. You know, God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. Does that mean I'll never be afraid? No, it doesn't mean that. It certainly doesn't. It means we overcome fear because the spirit of Christ Jesus in us is more powerful. It's the love of God that's from everlasting to everlasting and is stronger than death. And so we have this commission to be out Speaking the truth. And that truth is so powerful it overcomes every device of the adversary and everything in life that wars against us. But we have to keep on humbling ourselves before God. We have to keep on giving ourselves up to God. We have to keep realizing it's going to be, sometimes going to be fearsome. Sometimes I'm going to be astonished. Sometimes I'm going to wonder what's going on. Sometimes I'm going to be with Peter like He was after Jesus said, you know, flesh and blood are not going to cut the mustard, Peter. The words I speak are spirit and life. And Peter, amazed at what Jesus had been saying about drinking his blood and eating his flesh, said, Lord, I don't understand these things. And Jesus said, are you going to leave me? He said, where else can I go? You have the words of life. Where else would I ever go, Jesus? You have the words of life. And sometimes we follow like that. Other times we follow, he knew, singing, Victory in Jesus, my Savior, forever. Other times we're like the psalmist going, Where are you, God? How much longer is it going to be? Here, my please. But we're always led in triumph because Jesus has all authority. He has all authority. It's an amazing thing to think, isn't it? Let's pray together. Father, we want to want to thank you, Lord, that not only do you have all authority, but the authority that you have, you... You've chosen to exercise it tenderly toward us, to raise us up, God, to heal us, to make us whole, to embolden us. Father, you're very tender, and your kindness has led us to repentance. 
Father, may we know that kindness more and more thoroughly. May we see it more clearly. God, that we would never withhold from you who we are, what we have. Oh, God, help us. Because some things appear so real when it's you who are real. You're the truth. You're the way. You're life. So, Father, we give ourselves up to you freshly. God, we pray that your word would do its good work in us and then through us, God. That it might be a, a sword, even the sword of the Spirit. That we combat the powers of darkness, God. That we have the boldness to proclaim the word as we should, as we ought. Even as Paul asked prayers for himself, God. That we would pray one for another. And we would pray even for ourselves, God. That we might keep the faith. Be fruitful in the faith. Bring glory to you, God. And on that day, stand before you unashamed because of what you've done for us and who you've made us to be. So, Father, here we are. Bless us. Make us a blessing. Glorify your name. We ask it in Jesus' name.